0: Good morning, folks. This morning, we are going to continue in our consideration of what Paul, in his letter to the churches uh, at, at, in the area we know as Galatia, uh, Called the fruits of the spirit, and he lists several of them. We're going uh, last week. We we talked about, it, and I urge you to go back and look at the uh, sermon podcast, and you'll see uh, a, a last week's sermon on love, joy, and peace. Today we're going to pick up uh, the next three: patience, kindness, goodness, and faithfulness. Um, and I, I wanted to just remind you of uh, that text that uh, Sajina. Read to us, you know, where Paul uh, reminds us that uh, these are the, the fruits that we are we are um, called to bear. These are what the things that we should be striving for as we seek to fulfill our role in the kingdom that Jesus has inaugurated. This is what a poor human generates in their life. And as one of the things we're going to see today or remind ourselves of is that the spirit produces these fruits in us. God intended that we be like this, but we play a very important role in bearing such fruit. Today, we're, we are... we uh, are Looking at these through the lens of another epistle, this one from uh, traditionally understood to be from Peter and and most scholars, including myself, would say that uh, uh, Peter's you can see Peter's hand at work in, in this second epistle of Peter. Um, if you remember from last week, we talked about Paul's letter to the Philippians, and we focused in chapter four, and in particular, we spent some good time talking about and uh, looking at the the first three gifts through the lens of of, of Paul's. Uh, chapter four, verse eight uh, in that church, uh, in that letter to the Philippians, where he commended us to focus our thoughts on all that is true, all that is holy, all that is just, all that is pure, all that's lovely, and all that is worthy of praise. Well, today we see that Paul wasn't alone in this emphasis. This was happening sometime around the year 50. Uh, We're not sure when the second epistle of Peter was actually promulgated, but it's very clear that the early church really understood that the way we fulfill our mission has to do with uh, uh, bearing certain fruits. Now, Peter's take on those fruits is a little different than Paul's, but they're very similar. You see, in in this epistle, he he says it begins with faith. And you know, and by the way, I was cooking this morning. I was cooking Sejina so and me some red beans and rice. You know, and so I was I was uh, starting with some some oil, and I added some onions, and I added some celery, and I added um, some uh, bell pepper, and I had the you know the holy trinity, uh, which is in, in Louisiana. So we call it the holy trinity. Almost every Cajun dish, you know, starts with those three ingredients. Well, like that, Peterson sort of builds a recipe. You know. For First, you take faith and then you add to it moral excellence, and then you got to add knowledge. I want to focus on that word knowledge in, in a few minutes. Uh, then we add to knowledge self-control, and then we add to self-control uh, this this uh, this habit of endurance, and then to endurance we add a little bit more. We add uh, the habit of godliness, and to and to that we add the habit of affection for others. And of course, the main ingredient in it all, uh, to, you know, to, that, that we add right at you know at the end of in Peter's um, list of ingredients is agape. That same word we saw last week. Uh, an important point. I wanted to to bring out is is what what Peter says next, that if all of these are growing in you, well, that will keep you from becoming inactive and unfruitful, inactive and unfruitful in what well in the knowledge of our Lord, our Lord Jesus, the Messiah. So let's focus on that word knowledge. I want to remind you that we hear that, we tend to hear that in our Western minds along the lines of what the Greek would use, the word episteme, uh, which, which has to do with, like I know that, you know, knowledge is, Two plus two equals four. Right. Uh, You know, I know that three times three equals nine. I know facts and I I know things that can describe Jesus. Right. That's a very different kind of knowledge. If I were to talk about that kind of, you know, I know Sajina, you know, my wife. Well, I would I would you know, I could say I know her driver's license number. I know her height. I, I know where she lives. I know all those things. But if I if those are the things I know, I can simply describe things about her. I really don't know her in well, let's call it the biblical sense. In, this, in the biblical sense, is one of participation. It's it's one of. Of, of spiritual union. So when, when when Peter is talking about becoming inactive and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus, the Messiah, what he's talking about is being unfruitful in our participation, in our spiritual reun- uh, union, in our in our spiritual relationship with the Messiah. To be inactive and unfruitful in our union with and in our participation in the life of one we are called to love is to lose that connection and to see our relationship wither. If we do that in our spousal relationships, if we're inactive and unfruitful uh, in our father, son, in our mother, daughter, our father, daughter, our, our mother, son, our fraternal and sororal relationships, well, then they wither. You know, yesterday Saji and I were involved in a lot of cleanup, and I, I was working a one little admin job. I did. I, I got frustrated with the the address book uh, on my my iPhone, and so I went through and used all of the various address books that I have, and I deleted over three hundred contacts from my ad, uh, contacts from my address books. <laughs> And as I did it, I was just swamped by all these memories of times long past. that were different chapters of my life. I, I I thought a few times a little, you know, with a little uh, uh, regret, I was going to delete some of these. I Because I saw I could have nourished those relationships, but I didn't. They had withered and uh, they were no longer really part of my life. And it seemed uh, too challenging to try to. Uh, to, to reactivate them. I had to simply not nourished them. I had become inactive and unfruitful in those relationships. Now, I want to remind you, biblically, to be alive is to be in relationships. When we talk about eternal life, it's talking about being in relationship with God. When our relationships are inactive and unfruitful, the other becomes like dead to us, and we can become as though we are dead to them. And that's what's at stake here. There's a lot at stake, you know. Becoming dead to God, becoming dead to the Messiah—not really from their perspective, but but from our perspective. It's just almost as though we've deleted Jesus from our address book, unless we actively and fruitfully participate in His life. This is what Peter is saying is at stake here. And then he says, uh, you know, what, what you see when, when you know when someone lacks these fruits, these ingredients that he just listed. Well, the world sees them as they are. They're short-sighted and blind, and they, they seem to forget. They seem to, to forget what God has done for them. We don't want to be that, do we? So let's focus now on these virtues and I want to remind you, the word, you know, from which we get virtue, habitus, is, is, is the word habit. So virtue is a habit. It's a thick, thick habit of, of a way in which we respond to God's love. And these these habits are themselves the fruit we are to produce in our lives. So let's start with the first one that Paul talked about, which is patience and uh I want to first, in in all of these, looking at these three words, remind us that we don't necessarily know what these words mean at first glance. In our Western parlance, we tend to have very uh, shallow understandings of this word. But what we want to understand, as Paul is teaching us, is the biblical meaning, but the understanding of the words that we translate into our English words that he would have brought to them in his time. And that would have been a combination of Secular understandings in his in his native Greek and Aramaic, and uh, and and then the, the particularly biblical understandings that he would have inherited as one who was c- completely immersed uh, in in Scripture. And so, uh, one of the distinctions that we need to make between the secular biblical usage of the word that we translate into patience, which is macrothemia. Uh, is uh, that in secular usage, this word in the secular Greek of his time, of Paul's time, this word meant it denoted putting up with hardship. So patience uh, was was putting up with hardship. For example, the the uh, the, the the great historian Plutarch uh, uses makrothymia, which is the word patience, to describe the steadfastness of the general or of the soldier and putting up with hardships until their goal was achieved. Similarly, the word was used in Greek to describe the steadfastness of swimmers in the sea who are seeking safety on the shore. Now, I think that's helpful because it helps us to see that the Greek word that we translate as patience has something to do with forbearance, something to do with forbearing because one keeps the ultimate objective in view Keeping the ultimate injective in view is inseparable inseparable from our idea of patience. Now, biblically, the word has a a particular meaning. The Greek Bible translates the the Hebrew words uh, that are there uh, in, in the English form of to delay the outbreak of his wrath, meaning God's wrath, to delay the outbreak of God's wrath and to be long suffering. The word long suffering is the way actually some of you may have grown up with the King James Bible, the King James Bible and the new King James Bible both uh, translate Paul's word patience. Instead of using the word patience, you'll see there in the text, long suffering. Um, and, And in the old Testament, I want to remind us that Yahweh is not the God of wrath, but the God who restrains God's wrath. That's a really important difference. The Bible, the Old Testament God is the God who restrains God's wrath and causes his grace and loving kindness to rule. Now, that doesn't mean that God overlooks or renounces the grounds of his wrath in, in, in the same way that uh, when you're disciplining your kids or your grandkids, it doesn't mean when you are patient with them that you uh, overlook and don't see the, you know, the things that are justifiable uh, causes of, of your own uh, frustration. What it does mean in the Bible is that alongside the grounds for divine wrath, there is a divine restraint, a divine restraint which postpones that wrath that is actually our due until something takes place in humankind which justifies the postponement of that wrath. In other words, it's it was what we would say today is grace. It's a it's 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 uh, it's grace. So there's a divine restraint that 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 anticipates something that is not there, a maturing that is not is not that not yet there. And if that new attitude in humankind does not ultimately happen, then the restraint is set aside and the wrath then is used to discipline God's people. That's what we see in the Old Testament, and that's the way this word is used. Now, we see the same understanding of this word patience in the New Testament. The patience of God God doesn't imply that God is undecided. You know, doesn't have an idea about what is expected of his people, as though God is simply watching and waiting in order to decide what our covenantal obligations ought to be. No, those are already given by God. Nor does it imply that God has decided to accept our ways as God's ways or to, indul- to indulge in our infidelity, our wandering uh, to him. God's patience, in other words, does not overlook our Sin, our estrangement from God. It simply sees further than we do. God's patience has God's ultimate purpose in view, God's ultimate purpose of reconciling all of God's creation to God's self, always in view. So it has the true insight which knows best. Patience is focused on the end. That is not, and it's not swayed by human emotions are we, as we are. And as Paul says, that's the kind of patience we're to manifest to. Patience doesn't mean that we are blind to the things that ought to stir up our wrath. You know, when we see injustice, it doesn't mean we don't get we don't get angry about it. It doesn't mean we are to be, be blind to injustice. It doesn't mean we're to be blind to stupidity. It doesn't mean we are to be blind to falsehood or pretend that there's no such thing as truth. But it does mean that we restrain the outbreak of our wrath by keeping God's ultimate end in view, God's ultimate end of reconciliation in view. We forbear because the big picture is that God is acting in our midst to draw the world into God's love. And God has called us by name to be a part of that theodrama. So we restrain our wrath so that love reigns. Now, that's easy to talk about. It's always easy to talk about patience. I, Sajee so and I actually joke a lot because I'm not known for my patience. Uh, uh, but but in some cases, but in some cases, I'm pretty I'm pretty good at it. You know, I'm really patient with our our, our kids, uh, for example. But but not so patient when I see people getting treated poorly. Uh, so it's, it's something easy to talk about, but hard to do. I got to tell you something I'm working on every day, trying to be better at, at, at this patience thing. It's hard to check our wrath when we see injustice or falsehood. We want things to be made right, and we want it to be made right here and now on our schedule. And sometimes our wrath just bubbles out. That's certainly how it is with me. But it may be hardest to be patient when we encounter the petty stuff like the guy who takes your parking place at Wegmans or as something i've seen recently the store clerk who's been on her feet for 7 hours already and has lost her capacity to smile to to treat someone like their fellow humans <laughs> There's a story I, I uh, read about this. A woman sees a father shopping with a fussy two-year-old in his grocery cart. Be patient, Billy, he whispers. You can handle this, Billy. It's okay, Billy. And the, a woman alongside uh, who heard this said to him, I don't mean to interrupt your shopping, but I just had to tell you how wonderfully loving and patient you are with little Billy. And the man replied, actually, my son's name is Patrick. I'm Billy. Paul says that the spirit cultivates the fruit of patience within us. The spirit is available coming alongside like the paraclete, you know, to whisper to us thoughts of love and joy and peace and patience every moment of our life, right now. And all we have to do is stop. Ask and listen, and that gift will come. So let's move on to the the next virtue that Paul describes for us, which is kindness. This is a little bit different. Christotes, the the second fruit of the Spirit in Greek is Christotes, which most English Bibles translate as kindness. Now, many of us uh, uh, would you know, assume we know what it means to be kind. One of the things that's interesting about having a, you know, almost eight year old is sometimes they, 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 you know, he'll, uh, so they're us you know, what does that word mean? And you have to actually stop and think about a word, defining a word in real simple terms that uh, for which there might not be um, you know, contextual background uh, if, upon which you can draw on on his on his uh, his behalf. Uh, and, and so let's talk about what does it mean to be kind as though we're teaching it to someone who doesn't know that word? Well, it's interesting. The secular word in Greek that Paul would have known in Greek of this word that he uses means serviceable or excellent for its intended purpose. In other words, when a thing acts as a thing is intended to act, it is Christotes. So before we consider the biblical meaning of it all, we capture a sense of what kindness actually is. When we are kind, we are acting excellently for the purpose for which we we are created. And this sense becomes a bit more particular when we turn to the Bible. When, When God acts with faithfulness to God's covenantal promises and to God's own nature as the covenant God, God shows himself to be Christotes thereby. And because God is Christotes, one can trust and hope in God as our Lord. And in the Old Testament, when something is Christotes, or what we say, what we translate as kind, what we see there is that uh, it conforms to God's, or God conforms to God's essential nature and purpose as described in the covenant of grace. Now, in the New Testament, for Paul, God has always been true to God's nature and thus has always been. Christotes, God has always been kind. But the word takes on a more particular meaning in Paul's letters, such as uh, the church that went, went to the church of Galatia. For Paul, God's kindness just is God's gracious action toward humankind in the Messiah. And that makes it possible, Paul says, for you and I to be kind Also, God's gracious action makes our gracious action possible. When we are kind, we act towards our neighbor according to the purpose for which God created us. We serve our neighbor in a way consistent with our own covenant faithfulness. Uh, we actually are be- being the image of God in this way. So since the heart of the covenant, we find in the heart of Leviticus 1918, you must love your neighbor as yourself. Kindness is that action that we take that constitutes loving our neighbor as ourself. Whatever that action is, which loves our neighbor as though they are ourselves in that particular moment of our lives, that's what kindness is, biblically. Tolstoy, the great Russian writer, was passing along a street one day when a beggar stopped him, and he pleaded for ain't for alms. Uh, Tolstoy searched through his pockets for coin, but finding none, he regretfully said... Please don't be angry with me, my brother, but I have nothing with me. If I did, I would gladly give it to you. The beggar's face flamed up and he said, you have given me more than I have asked for. You have called me brother. Kindness, the fruit of kindness. Now, let's talk about generosity this one is a bit surprising because here we find a word uh, Paul uses, the sixth fruit of the spirit uh, that is indicative of our maturity as humans. Uh, and it's and, and, and one that we would assume everyone understands, you know, everyone understands the, the word generosity. Right. What it means to be generous, uh, what it means to be good in several of the English translations. What you see is is goodness instead of the word generosity, which is in our translation today. So we all know what it means, right? Not so fast. The Greek word there, ogothosune, is not found, actually, in the secular Greek of Paul's time. It's a very specialized word. We only find it four times in the New Testament and 12 times in the Old Testament. And the word family from which it comes is the word that we translate as goodness. But in the Old Testament, goodness simply means alignment with God's instruction, Torah. Those who do the will of God as contained in the Torah do good and are, therefore, good. They have goodness because they do what Torah says. Only the person who is good both to God and to his fellow creatures is a good and righteous man. The word Paul uses in his letters, which we translate as generosity or goodness, is a biblical word derived from this, which has a specialized meaning. It can refer to the beneficence that one has shown. It can refer to moral goodness, and it can refer to well-being and happiness. Only Paul uses the word in the New Testament, and he says it is strictly a gift. Generosity is strictly a gift of the Holy Spirit, a fruit of the Holy Spirit, a work of the light, the light that is coming into uh, our world uh, that we celebrate this Christmas Eve. For Paul, agothosine is, first of all, the intention to do that which is good. It's, in other words, an attitude of goodwill. Important for us to remember this, this Advent time. It's more than that. It's a right disposition of the soul. At least first and foremost, there's this it's something inside us that is disposed uh, to manifest goodwill. This attitude characterizes anyone who is morally aligned with God. So we, when we translate it as generosity or goodness, um, uh, we, we're we're getting at it, but it more specifically refers to a goodness of the heart. Now, Saint Jerome talked about this uh, generosity or goodness of which Paul speaks. To, uh, that is, and he said it's related to kindness. It's it is also giving uh, to doing good for one's neighbor. The difference is that goodness has this historic uh, relation to God's instructions given in in Torah or generosity does. It can at times be uh, a, a bit somber. It can at times have, you know, knitted brows and an austere tone, you know, doubtless doing good and giving what is asked, but without drawing everyone into it with its sweetness. It will always take care to obtain for others that which is useful or beneficial. But it, generosity can sometimes have a stern side and apply itself to correcting and disciplining. So have you ever thought about that, that the word generous sometimes includes correcting and disciplining someone else? The generosity of which Paul speaks is a goodness of the heart that seeks in particular to live as God has instructed us to live, to be conformed by the renewing of our minds to the pattern that Jesus has set for us. I heard a story of a missionary in Africa who received a knock on the door of his hut one afternoon, and he answered it. And when he did, the missionary found a native boy holding a large fish in his hands. The boy said, Reverend, you taught us what tithing is. So here, I've brought you my tithe. So the missionary gratefully took the fish, but then he questioned the boy. Well, if this is your tithe, Where are the other nine fish? At this, the boy beamed and said, oh, they're still back in the river. I'm going to go back and catch them now. Generosity. Generosity. So how is all of this good news for us? Well, I think our, our biblical text today uh, tell us quite a lot about it. You know, we uh, we, we started with Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel, uh, speaking to a people who were all caught up in the experience of exile, experience of being estranged from God. And Ezekiel uh, reminded them uh, and proclaimed God's promise to them that God has not forgotten them, you know, the promise that you will be cleansed, that you will be given a heart transplant that that God was going to replace your stony heart with a living heart you know one capable of relationships so that you're alive and that and that God will give you God's spirit and that that spirit will empower you to walk in God's ways empower us to walk in God's ways and and we saw in in Paul's letter to Galatia, that when we decide to follow Jesus, the Messiah, as Lord of our lives, well, we belong to him. That's Paul's letters all about this. He gets into what the the, uh, meaning of our baptism is. And so when we make that decision to belong with him and crucify the flesh, that is to say, we are liberated through the renewing of our minds from the passions and desires that would otherwise lead us off the way of love. Paul's letters are filled with this. And, and Paul reminds us that the spirit that was promised in the prophet Ezekiel and other prophets will guide us and does guide us on right paths so that we can actually be long-suffering, kind, and generous. And then we see this epistle from Peter. We want to be fruitful in our participation in Jesus's life, in our union, our spiritual union with Jesus. We want to have a strong relationship with him because we want to be alive. And to be alive is is to be in relationship with him. And the good news that we read in Peter is that God has already given us everything we need to do that. By his divine power, the Lord has given us everything we need for life and godliness through the knowledge of the one who called us. So there's a whole bunch here that we see in this uh, this this note from Peter. First, that God has already given us everything we need. That is surely good news. We we've got the starter kit, if you like, for all that we need to become. We have to do our part. Of course, we have to make a moral effort to become whom God wants us to be. But Peter's quite clear. Most of the work comes from God in the first place. And we've already been given uh, the starter kit. Secondly, our risen Lord wants nothing less for us than that we should come to share in his very nature. We see that in verse four. You, you might feel uneasy with that idea, you might feel uneasy with the idea of sharing God's nature, as though the humility to, to which we are so often exhorted ought to preclude our imagining ourselves as actually sharing God's very being or nature. But that's what this Christmas tide season that we're about to begin is all about, right? The incarnation. We celebrate the birth of the Messiah, that God became flesh in the life of Jesus of Nazareth. And during this Advent time, we we become incorporated in him through the spirit to become his enfleshed bodily presence in the world we occupy, in the time we live. This is central to what it means to be a Christian. After all, if we say that the Messiah's spirit is fully divine and if we say that the Messiah's spirit comes to live within us and transform us from within, what is that but to say that the that Jesus's nature is already dwelling within us, leading us forward until we overflow with God's own presence and God's own power. Brothers and sisters, that's what we mean when we speak and sing of Emmanuel, God with us. It means that God has favored us. How? By donating God's very presence to us, living within us, dwelling within us, leading us through the Messiah's spirit to the fullness of our humanity that generates these fruits This fullness of our humanity that God desires for us, that God dreams for us. Obviously, most of the time, it doesn't feel that way. But that's because we're not mature yet, not mature in our union with God yet. We don't understand what actually happens when God takes up residence in our lives. Third, God has Indeed, called and chosen those who find themselves following Jesus. We see this in verse 10. Uh, And and I'm reminded of of what happened just a few weeks ago. You know, Jeannie was received into the Episcopal Church and the the bishop laid hands on her and prayed that she would be confirmed in her call and in her choice to follow Jesus as Lord of her lives. Our prayer for her confirmation doesn't mean that we hope to make God more sure of it, to confirm that God will be confirmed in it. No, it means that our prayer is that she herself will be made more sure, that we ourselves will be made more confident, more sure of God's presence in us. And all of that brings us to Peter's fourth point. Jesus has already inaugurated the Messiah's kingdom his sovereign rule over the entire created order. And when the age to come has fully and finally arrived, when, when time is mature, well, those who in the present time, that's us follow Jesus will find that we are welcomed into that ultimate heaven and earth reality. That's the good news. Now, Sometimes I talk to folks who uh, are what the scholars of today call unchurched and uh, another group called dechurched. Those are the ones who were, were brought up as Christians and left it in frustration. And you know, I, one of the things I'll often hear them say is, I don't like Christians. And you ask why? I, say, I don't like Christians because they're mean spirited. Not something we want to hear during Christmas time, folks. They're mean spirited. Uh, and and and, that, and and hypocrites will often will often hear them say, but when we have the fruits Paul's talking about, such folks say, "I want to be around you. I want to be like you." According to Second Peter, when we don't cultivate these fruits, we become inactive and unfruitful in the union with the Messiah and others recognize us as short-sighted and blind, and they don't want to be a part of us. So this, I think, brings us to a question that we need to ask ourselves. Once again, the same one I mentioned last week, what do you want to be when you grow up? Alive in your relationships with God and others, or experiencing the withering and long, slow death of those relationships that God sent into your life in order to bless you? Do you want to be fruitful or barren? It's an important question, because what you do today will determine who you will be. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.